What is this Wyndham Rewards program, and should we care? Let's tee it up. Welcome to Data Access Golf, your home for rapid golf improvement. And now, from the thin air of the Rocky Mountains, next on the number one tee, your host, Aaron Stewart. Hey everyone, Aaron Stewart, Data Access Golf, the podcast. Thanks for joining me here today, the day before another WGC event, which is hard, it's hard to believe, right? That it comes right after the British Open, that it's over here um, I think this schedule is going to cause some problems in that regard, and we'll get it all figured out. But very interesting to have all the majors wrapped up in July, for sure. And now we're just getting ready for the playoffs. There is an interesting wrinkle in all this, and it's not one that that many of us has, have paid attention to. Although the PGA, the PGA Tour website has kept us up to date on what's going on. And essentially, it's this whole idea of the Wyndham Rewards. And I got onto this um, actually just recently. I saw the Wyndham Rewards. I kind of knew that it was a regular season thing, but didn't really pay much attention to it because there's so much else going on. But the, this Wyndham's reward is having a has having the desired effect, which is surprising to me because I I wasn't exactly sure what the point of it was. But the obviously the Wyndham is next week and it's the last tournament before the playoffs and kind of the last, you know, your last ditch effort to earn points to finish in the top 10 of the regular season. And this top 10 is a regular season bonus of $10 million with the, you know, the top points leader in the FedEx Cup receiving 2 million bucks. It's kind of a nice little bonus for and what it's done is it's kept people more involved in adding tournaments to try to get into that top 10. I mean, the 10th place is 500K, right? Second place is 1.5 million. So now the regular season becomes a bigger deal. And the Wyndham at the end of the regular season becomes a bigger deal. So yeah, I was looking into all this and seeing what's going on. Obviously, Brooks Kepka has um, leapfrogged. Matt Kuchar, who has held that top spot in the FedEx Cup for quite some time this year. But you've got now, uh, you've got Brooks now up at the top. And, um, he could kind of, if he wins, if he wins this, uh, uh the WGC FedEx, FedEx St. Jude invitation. Say that 10 times fast, folks. That's a tough one. The WGC FedEx St. Jude Invitational. Woo! You yeah, that. What World Golf Championship? That's the one, right? FedEx, FedEx Cup, FedEx, Federal Express, right? I guess we could go the World Golf Championship, Federal Express, St. Jude Hospital Invitational. Blah. Anyway, so yeah, you've essentially got you've got obviously a WGC event now, and then you've got the FedEx coming back. What an interesting history the. This um, tournament has had there in Memphis, um, FedEx kind of, you know, there was like, I think Danny Thomas had his name on it for a while. It was like the Memphis Open for a while. And then it was played at one spot. I can't remember where. And, and now we've got it. Um, now we've got it sponsored by, well, FedEx was the sponsor for quite some time. And then was it Stanford Financial that came in and had, 
and had some kind of a Ponzi scheme, something or other. You remember that? And so the name was then changed to just St. Jude. Like, let's, uh, let's, let's part ways again. And then FedEx came back in, which FedEx, right? Playing a big part in the PGA tour now with the FedEx cup. And now, um, now sponsoring a WGC event, um, this week in Memphis. So, uh, pretty interesting stuff, but some of the, and, and why I got interested, I got to be in, in all of this is there was a, um, there, there's been a few discussions that I've heard on, on air about, um, Brooks Kepka and how everybody's trying to figure out if Brooks Kepka cares and if he's even going to show up and play well at Memphis and whatever. And, uh, so th- that seemed interesting to me. So as I do, I started looking at the data, right? That's the fun stuff to look at. Started geeking out in the stats a little bit. So I pulled some numbers on Brooks Kepka to see if all this chit chat about Brooks Kepka being, you know, really fascinated by majors and doesn't really care about um, regular season just to see what the numbers say. And it's definitely something that you feel, right? Because Brooks Kepka is nails during majors. He's always up there at the top. I mean, he finished, what, top four in every single major this year. Only the, what, fourth or fifth person to do that ever. So that's a big deal. But so what, what does the data say when we look at Brooks' record? So Brooks has played in a total of 20 three majors. And I'm just going to look at this from a consistency number. That's how I always like to look at it, which is essentially how many events they've entered and how many cuts they've made, right? How, you know, how consistent are they in these events? And can we see some differences in his regular season consistency number and his major consistency uh, number? And so, yeah, so Brooks Kepka has, including this year, has played in 23 majors, Dating back to 2000, his very first major was 2013 PGA Championship, where he finished tied for 70th. Okay, and that is by far his lowest in a major. Um, not by far. I guess the the Open Championship, uh, the British Open, he he finished tied 67 in 2014. But since that time, his lowest has been what 21st in math in the Masters in 2016. So he's played quite well. Oh no, we've got the Open Championship last year at T39, so that wasn't uh, the best. But anyway, all that being said, okay, he has played in 23 major championships and he has made the cut 22 times. That is a 96% consistency rating, 96%. That puts him in what we call our elite category where only Tiger Woods resides as far as the winners this year. Um, so in major championships, which are arguably harder than all the other regular season tournaments, the rough is longer, the fairways narrower, all of that, the, the fields are the strongest. Brooks Kepka has a 96% cut rate, right? On courses that are arguably harder, but have more panache if you win, right? They do a lot more for your career and your legacy if you win. That's obviously important to Brooks. He's motivated by that. It gives him whatever he needs to stay focused on the task at hand for all four rounds. Now, if we look at, now you take those 23 tournaments and pull them out of his total number. And so if you take those, if you take that, uh, his majors out, of the number of tour events he's played in, he has played in 99 regular tour events and he has made 79% of the cuts. That's an 80% rate. 
So yeah, kind of a big deal. Um, he is, yeah, 14, what, 16 points lower in a regular season event making the cut than in a major. And he has only missed, it, and get this, he's, he's only missed the cut once in a major, and that was his second major. And it was over um, the British Open. He struggled at the British Open. You've got, he was cut, T67. That was a, I mean, those were the first two that he's played in. Um, anyhow, so there you go. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Brooks Kepka has a problem staying motivated and interested in regular tour season events. And he gave us a little insight into why that is, which I thought was super fascinating. In his presser, at uh, the British Open, he said, look, they asked him, why are you so different? And we can see here, he's 16 percentage points different in his consistency number and just making the cut major versus regular season. I think that if we, if, if we took and looked at strokes gained, we could probably get an idea of how much harder one venue was from the other. And uh, it's probably got to be way more than that based on how easy the regular season courses are compared to the championship, the major championship courses. But he said, hey, yeah, when you see me, um, the only time I practice is at majors. Um, for the regular season, when you see me on TV playing golf, that's when I play golf, not practicing. Is that shocking? I was a little surprised by that. Not, hey, he's an independent contractor. He can do whatever he wants. And he's making 96% of his cuts at the majors. So he's doing something right. Uh, very fascinating, interesting stuff for sure um, with Brooks Kepka. So why this is a regular, um, this is what we'd consider to be a regular tour season event. It is a WGC and they do have a little more um, cachet, if you will, than the other regular season tournaments. And it is offering 550 FedEx Cup points instead of the typical 500 where majors offer 600. So if Brooks Kepka wins this week, he wraps up that $2 million, the top, he'll finish top in the FedEx Cup points rating rankings, and he will win the $2 million prize. He could secure that with a win this week. Um, so does that, is that enough? Is that enough to keep Brooks Kepka interested in this tournament? And then you have to throw in all of this. Uh, you've got all these guys that went over to Ireland and played in the British Open who have now flown back. You've got jet lag. You've got everything else that goes along. Then you've got a group of guys that are over here playing in the Barracuda, not dealing with any jet lag. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of those guys that were not in the British Open do very well in, com in comparison to those that did cross the pond and play in um, the British Open. So that will be, I think, very interesting to see for sure. Um, how Brooks Kepka does, and we'll definitely refer to it uh, coming up in our next podcast. No question about it. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up just briefly was I am still flying high from the interview I had with Fred Shoemaker on Monday, and I got that podcast up yesterday, and it still remains. I have listened to that podcast now five times because I cannot believe how much wisdom and, and how many amazing points Fred Shoemaker makes in that podcast about golf, about learning golf, about the best way to learn golf, about how to get better, about how to 
um, make sure that we are playing golf in the very best way possible for us and how we can make sure that the improvements that we make in our golf games actually stick because they are reflective of who we really are and how we can actually perform. It was absolutely fascinating. I hope that, uh, in fact, stop right now if you haven't heard it. Forget this podcast and go back and listen to the one previous about uh, the interview with Fred Shoemaker because it is, um, and I say unabashedly, it has got to be the best golf podcast episode ever made. Now, I haven't listened to all of them, but based on the knowledge, and I've listened to some other ones that Fred Shoemaker has done in the past, obviously, um, being one of his disciples for the last 12 years, but um, this one, he, sh- he it was special. This one, he went into it a little more in depth, and it was broken down into sequences where you could actually apply these things. You could apply his wisdom to your specific game, and it was beautiful, and it was fascinating. It was very cool. Um, that if, you know, I could wrap up, I probably should have, I probably should have gone George Costanza and said, just finished on a high note and wrapped the whole thing up and said, that's it for me, but I'm not that smart. So, but that Fred Shoemaker uh, podcast will generate tons of content going forward for this, for the data access golf podcast, because so much came out of that. Um, a lot of my memories came out of that and things that have caused me to think more about stuff that I've learned at Fred Shoemaker's feet that I feel more empowered to share. I almost feel like I got uh, kind of Fred Shoemaker's approval uh, by him coming on to the show. And I know that he wouldn't look at it that way and he would never be presumptuous enough to say that I can't say whatever I want. But that's the way I felt. I felt like, you know, once I have Fred on and have him kind of discussing with us and, and this, the Data Access Golf audience golf, then I better be careful and mind my P's and Q's on what I share and what I can say. Uh, but I feel like um, I feel like my, you know, I'm, I'm going to spread my wings and really go into this stuff uh, deeply. He said some things that were very empowering for me and I appreciated it. And when he said them, I know what he, I know what he meant. And, and if you listen to the podcast, I think you'll pick up on that, that he was telling me to go. He was telling me to uh, to share. And so I will do a better job of that going forward uh, for sure and share the experiences that I've had with not only Fred, but this wonderful group of people that I've been in mastery with. I just feel like I've been given the uh, the green light to go hard and go fast on those topics. So we will. We will be doing that going forward. And then finally, and this is probably, I should have reorganized this podcast probably, but finally, um, this Xander Shoffley and the RNA situation is one that has, um, I guess it's, it's a bit concerning just because you never see the RNA really do anything. They've always been, it seems, above reproach. And I've always liked their responses when people have kind of pushed back and, and ripped on the USGA that the RNA really has their own opinion and has their own uh, way of doing things. We don't know, at least we haven't been told, how the information about Xander Shoffley's um, non-conforming driver was released. We have no idea. Uh, We probably never will find out how that was released. It wasn't cool that it was released. It did put Xander in a bad way because they named names, that it was his driver. Literally, Brandon, I mean, um, Xander had nothing to do with it. I mean, you just go out and you hit your driver. These players do not test and look at 
It's really that's that goes on the manufacturer, that goes on his agent, it goes on those his team for not uh, being more vigilant and testing that out. But this morning when I was driving in to work, I heard I was listening to Michael Breed's show, and I I really like Michael Breed. I think that he's a, a really good guy, obviously a classy guy. Um, I think that he typically his opinions are dead on. But man, I really hated what he said this morning about Xander Shoffley and the whole situation as that went down. And and basically his point was that Xander should have had a backup driver and it shouldn't have been that big of a deal. And the only reason that Xander was throwing a fit is because he'd lost his, I don't know, nubby or whatever he was calling it. We called it, you know, we called it blankies or uh, what do you call it? Like a nubby or whatever, like a little blanket or something that's your friend, your imaginary friend or or a stuffed animal or a little blanket or something that, that brings you great comfort. And like somehow or another, Xander Shoffley was just ticked off because um, he lost his favorite driving. He, he lost his driver. And that bothered me for a number of reasons. But the two main ones were first off, um, Xander Shoffley swing. I, I mean, yeah, their shafts can be a little bit different, but the tolerances now are so narrow that it's pretty easy for them and you can slap it on a track, man, and you can dial it in pretty close. So even if it doesn't feel exactly right, you know that it's performing exactly right because you've seen the numbers. And if you have confidence in it, then how it feels and all that, I just don't think that it's it's just not that important anymore. Like it used to be, it used to be so important that when you found a club that you held on to it forever because you knew there was no way you would go out and be able to find anything that was exactly the same as this club. But now with all the technology and, and how tight the tolerances are on equipment, you can slap something together and then you can go in and fine tune it with all the adjustments of these, uh, you know, these adjustable drivers and dial it into where it may not sound exactly the same or feel exactly the same. It's performing exactly the same. Um, and that's why we've seen people able to make such amazing equipment changes so much more quickly than say like, a, you know, Rory McIlroy made his switch to Nike golf clubs. We still didn't have all the technology we needed to kind of get that fit in right. But now you see like, a, you know, Justin Rose go, go to Homa and then win at Torrey Pines like two weeks later. You know, so and this idea, I heard somebody talking the other day about Justin Rose and how he struggled this year. I guess it was in the lead up to the British Open, how he's struggling this year because of that equipment change. Uh, No, 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 it's not just and Justin did a lot of different things this year. He didn't practice as much for Augusta. He did some things differently in his schedule. I don't know if it's family situation. I don't know if uh, changing to home. uh, I don't think it has anything to do with the equipment. Maybe it changed in his schedule and that messed it up a little bit. But not the equipment. They had that dialed in. In fact, one of the lead reps from TaylorMade was over there with Homa fixing Justin up. I'm sure that they were dialed in to exactly what his specs were. So that would not have been an issue. And it wouldn't have been an issue for Xander Shoffley at this point. It would have been totally fine. And something that, that um, anyway, I just think that that was disingenuous. One, I think Xander had the right to be upset that his name was released because people started calling him a cheater. And whether they're laughing or think it's funny or not, that's not cool. Nobody wants to be called a cheater. I totally agree with Xander. Nobody enjoys that. And he didn't cheat. 
they found something, his driver to be non-conforming. And, and I think that Michael Breed did a really good job of explaining that when you hit a driver in the middle, in the center of the, of the face, as they do over and over again, it starts to get thinner. And as it gets thinner, it becomes non-conforming. The, the face has to be a certain width. It, it, can't, it can't provide too much bounce or it becomes non-conforming. Okay, so that thing happens, that non-conforming attribute of a thinning face happens naturally over time. Nothing to do with Xander other than he's so precise and so wonderful a player, he continues to hit it in the center of the face and he wore the center of the face out. And so it became non-conforming. Uh, easy for them to come up. I don't know if he had a backup driver or not, but I don't think that, that why he, that's why he was upset. He was upset because they released his name somehow or it got out and people started calling him a cheater. Any one of us would be upset with that. Nobody wants to be called a cheater. Ever. Whether you are or you aren't. Never. Right? Even if you are a cheater, you don't like to be called a cheater. But if you aren't, you don't like to be called a cheater either. So I have total, no problem with Xander being upset. And I have no problem with Xander saying that he was upset. He should be upset. Uh, but the thing that really bothered me with Michael Breed is, is like somehow or another Xander Shoffley throwing a fit. I'll tell you right now, if, if we all started sending in uh, emails to Michael Breed calling him a cheater, he'd freak out because his reputation and, and, uh, his image that he's built up over these years is important to him. He likes to be squeaky clean. He likes that image. It's important to him. He is that way. So I, to be called a cheater would be, devastating to a person like Michael Breed. He makes money off his squeaky clean image, which I have no problem with. I think it's great, but it's disingenuous to say that Xander Shoffley shouldn't be upset over that. Absolutely. He should be upset. Um, so anyway, that's the, that's the one little thing I had this. And, and I think Fred Shoemaker said it really wonderfully. Um, in a previous podcast that I was listening to, and we just didn't have time to get to it, but, that and and I've talked about this as well. When you use technology and you get into really figuring out what your swing is and understanding how it is, in a very real sense, what you're actually doing. And I had a really cool comment. Uh, I chatted with a couple of buddies of mine last night over the Fred Shoemaker uh, podcast. But uh, both of them know full well that when you when you use technology, it's not about the technology isn't the answer. It's the um, the feedback that tells you what you're doing that's the answer. And that's the beautiful part about it, is it you can then find out reality and then what you're experiencing and reality when those match up, I mean, that's real learning. Then you can go crazy, right? Because you know that what you're doing is, what you feel like you're doing is actually what you're doing and learning goes insanely fast from that point forward. And so in this particular case, Xander Shoffley, these guys are so good and so precise, and they understand that day to day, it's not going to feel the same. And so they don't get so attached to these clubs where if they don't have the exact same, I mean, if, if you are so attached to a club that you can't change to another club, um, that's just wrong. Like I, our bodies are so amazing and so they are so incredible that you could pick up another set of clubs and go to the range. And if you just experienced what was going on, you could go out and play with those clubs and play wonderful golf, play your golf. 
because your bodies can adjust that quickly. So this idea that somehow or another we have to get to a point that we have to find something and then we have to keep something is total crap. Every swing is a new is a new experience. Every swing is a is a, a brand new creation. There's nothing to there's nothing to memorize. We just do it. And Fred shared that with me, made it very clear with the math problems. He really does that. He will give you math problems as you're hitting balls and you have absolutely no ability to think about a conscious thought at all to control your swing because you're adding numbers and you are hitting these beautiful shots and it drives into, it, it finally makes you realize that consciously, you're not needed consciously to play really good golf. In fact, your conscious mind is a disaster as a golfer. Um, and that was a really cool experience for me. Same thing for these guys. They could go out and play with anything. And any of you, if you just let go of that notion, you can go out and play with any golf club. I don't care if it's regular. I don't care if it's stiff, extra stiff. I don't care if it's a two by four with a, with an iron strapped on the end. If you just allow your body to adjust to it, you can play with that. It's that brilliant. And I, I actually, I went to the eye doctor yesterday. This is, this is a, I was fascinated by this. I went to the eye doctor yesterday. Um, my eyes have kind of been bothering me lately. So I go into the eye doctor. He looks at my eyes. I had LASIK like 11 years ago. And it's been glorious. It's a total miracle to go from really bad eyesight to being able to see without any lenses or glasses or anything. Nothing's better than when you're in the DMV and they say, oh, you wear co co corrective lenses? You go like, no. No, I can see perfectly. 2015 vision. That was the best. Anyway, I go in there and my eyes have kind of started to slip. And I realized that at one point I couldn't really read close up, right? My, I was nearsighted and I couldn't really read my phone and everything was going away. And then, and then I noticed that, you know, further away, my sight was kind of struggling too. And I struggled for a couple weeks and then all of a sudden it was fixed. I'm like, oh yeah, I must've been sick or had an infection or something was going on. Um, but it turns out when they, when they tested out my eyes and took a look at them, my right eye takes care of the long view. Right. My, my, my right eye is nearsighted and my left eye, which both I was, um, I was nearsighted when I had the LASIK. And now I've got one eye that's farsighted and one eye that's nearsighted. And I, my body has taken what I have in my eyes and made my left eye so it can read stuff close up and I can do my work. And my right eye sees everything out in the distance. And somehow or another, my brain processes it. And I have very clear images and I can do everything I need to do. And yet I have two eyes that don't function. But it's been naturally taken care of for me. That's amazing. That's how awesome our bodies are. They just solved it for me. I Consciously, I did not think at all. I, all I did was like, man, my eyes are bugging me. And somehow or another, figured it out. That's what the golf swing is. You let your body figure it out. Consciously, don't think about it. Don't try to make yourself do anything, whatever. Distract your mind with math problems or whatever it is. And we know, I mean, there's lots of different things to think about outside of yourself. The breeze on the back of your neck, the shine off the ball, the grass in the wind, whatever it is. That's the cool part of golf. It's you create new every single time. So anyway, that's all I got for you today. Thanks for joining me. Please remember, better data always means better golf. Enjoy the tournament this weekend. Until next time, see ya.
Thanks for listening to Data Access Golf with Aaron Stewart. Check us out online at dataaccessgolf.com, and we'll see you on the next episode.